Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Tuesday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I am your host, literally Heather. Ah, good morning, you beautiful humans. It is so wonderful to be back with you today. Uh, The Palmetto State Armory Freedom Week sale ends on Wednesday. So for today, I am just going to link you directly to the sale itself and you can peruse to your heart's content. Uh, Do you know what else happens on Wednesday? The Sabre AR-10 comes back in stock and I have a running list for those of you who wish to be informed the moment that they are back and I will be pushing out a tweet. Be sure that you have your notifications on if this is something that you want. Now, let's get into today's show. Normally, I'd start off with a story about guns that the government's trying to take away from you because there's one like every day. They enjoy becoming tyrants. This gun story is a little different, though. For women, a firearm is the great equalizer. Philadelphia Police Department officers responded to a 1.34 a.m. report of a shooting in Germantown on Sunday morning. When authorities arrived, they found the woman standing on Germantown Avenue near one of the suspects who was injured and laying on the ground. The woman told police that four unknown men had entered her apartment before she opened fire. The complainant had arrived to her apartment and found four unknown males inside without her permission. A confrontation ensued, and the complainant shot the offenders, who then fled from the location. The first suspect was shot in his right leg and right arm. He was identified as 48-year-old Jermaine Parker and treated by medics before being taken to Einstein Medical Center in Philadelphia. Officers soon found the second suspect, Randy Miller, on a different street. The 45-year-old man was shot in the back and was transported also to Einstein Medical Center in critical but stable condition. This scenario highlights two very clear reasons that women should be armed and trained to handle firearms. The first is that a woman faced with a dangerous situation with four men was able to level the playing field and protect herself and her property by having a firearm. The second is that no matter how many times people tell you that you should just call the police, they are not always able to arrive in time to prevent a crime or to protect someone. Your protection is your responsibility. By being armed and trained, women can improve their chances of survival in dangerous circumstances, providing an additional layer of security in an unpredictable world. It is essential to remember that responsible firearm ownership involves training and the understanding that that responsibility that comes with carrying a weapon for self-defense is important. In this case, this woman made the correct decision. She exercised her rights to keep and bear arms, and most likely it saved her life. Don't forget to hit that PSA link in the show description and get yourself armed. You can get a compact dagger for only $299.99 right now. It's a perfect entry-level firearm. If you have questions, reach out. If I don't have the answer, I'm in an entire Rolodex of people 
to help me get you the right answer. But don't worry, though. The government is still trying to become tyrants. Last week, I watched a ton of C-SPAN as I sat in gymnastics and violin and orchestra and all of that. I watched Christopher Ray lie, and I watched the head of the FTC trip all over herself as she attempted to defend her and her agency's actions. Now, we all know nothing will ever come of any of these hearings because in spite of clear indications of not only impropriety at best, but illegality at worst, members of Congress are powerless to do anything other than cut funding, and we all know the government never shrinks. The Federal Trade Commission inappropriately pressured an independent third-party auditing firm to find that Twitter had violated the terms of its settlement agreement with the FTC. A motion filed last week in federal court reveals that misconduct and the FTC's own repudiation of the terms of the settlement agreement entitled Twitter to vacate the consent order its lawyers maintain. The latest development holds significance beyond Twitter's fight with the FTC, however, with the details providing further evidence that the Biden administration targeted Twitter because it's Elon, because of Elon Musk's support for free speech on his platform. I felt as if the FTC was trying to influence the outcome of engagement before it started. A CPA with nearly 30 years of experience with the big four accounting firm Ernst & Young testified last month. The FTC's pressure campaign left Ernst & Young partner David Roke so unsettled that he sought guidance from another partner concerning controlling ethical standards for CPAs to assess whether his independence had been compromised by the federal agency. Roke's testimony prompted attorneys for Twitter to seek documents from the FTC to assess whether the federal agency had repeated its pressure campaign with Ernst Ernst & Young's successors, but the agency refused to provide any details to the social media group. Twitter responded last week by filing a motion for a protective order and relief from consent order. That motion and its accompanying exhibits provide shocking details of an abusive agency targeting social media. When those facts are coupled with the report on the FTC that were issued earlier this year by the House Weaponization Committee subcommittee, uh, that report is also going to be in the show description, FYI. It seems clear that the Biden administration is targeting Twitter because Musk seceded from the censorship industrial complex. I can't wait to see how much money they withhold from the state of Missouri due to their smackdown on Biden's influence on social media companies. Thursday's motion began with the background necessary to appreciate the gravity of the FTC's scorched earth campaign against Twitter. More than a decade ago, the FTC entered into an agreement, a settlement agreement with Twitter after finding that Twitter had violated the FTC's, uh, the Federal Trade Commission Act by misrepresenting the extent it protected user information from unauthorized access. That 2011 settlement agreement resulted in a consent order that required Twitter to establish a, quote, 
Comprehensive Information Security Program that met specific parameters. The 2011 consent order also required Twitter to obtain an assessment from an independent third-party professional confirming compliance with the terms of the settlement agreement. From 2011 to 2019, Twitter operated under the 2011 consent order and received approximately 10 demand letters from the FTC seeking additional information. Then in October of 2019, Twitter informed the FTC that, quote, some email addresses and phone numbers provided for account security may have been used unintentionally for advertising purposes. In investigating that complaint or or that uh, report, the FTC sent Twitter another 15 or so demand letters over a two-year period before filing a complaint in a California federal court on May 25th, alleging that Twitter had violated the 2011 consent order and Section 5 of the FTC Act by misrepresenting the extent to which Twitter maintained and protected the privacy of non-public consumer information. The next day, the court entered a, quote, stipulated order, meaning Twitter and the FTC had agreed to the terms of that order for civil penalty, monetary judgment, and injunctive relief. That stipulated order allowed the FTC to reopen the 2011 proceeding, and enter an updated consent order, which created a new compliance structure. Under the 2022 order, Twitter was required to establish and maintain a comprehensive privacy and information security program to protect the privacy, security, confidentiality, and integrity of certain user information by November 22nd of 2022. That 2022 consent order also required Twitter to obtain an assessment of its compliance with the terms of the court ordered by qualified, objective, independent third-party professionals. While the 2022 consent decree remained unchanged after Musk's purchase became final, the FTC's posture towards Twitter changed drastically. As Twitter's Thursday motion detailed, In the five months between the signing of the consent order on May 25th of 2022 and Musk's acquisition of Twitter in October 27th of 2022, the FTC sent Twitter only three demand letters. All three letters concerned a whistleblower's claims that Twitter had violated the FTC Act and the 2011 consent order by making false and misleading statements about its security, privacy, and integrity. The FTC waited nearly two months after receiving the whistleblower's complaint before serving its first demand letter on Twitter. Musk's acquisition of Twitter produced a sudden and drastic change in the tone and intensity of the FTC's investigations into the company, among other things. The FTC publicly stated it was tracking recent developments at Twitter with deep concern. The FTC also stressed that the revised consent order provided the agency with, quote, new tools to ensure compliance, and it was, quote, prepared to use them. And use them, the FTC did. The agency immediately issued two demand letters to Twitter seeking information about workforce reductions and the launch of Twitter Blue. 
Those demand letters came before Twitter was even required under the 2022 consent decree to have its new programs in place. Since then, Twitter's attorneys note the FTC has pummeled Twitter's corporate owner, XCorp, with burdensome demand letters, more than 17 separate demand letters with some 200 individual demands for information and documents, translates into a new demand letter every two weeks. In addition to the FTC's flurry of demand letters, it began deposing former Twitter employees, five of them to date, and is currently seeking to question Elon Musk himself. The FTC also deposed Roke on June 21st of 2023, but that questioning backfired big time. Twitter learned from that deposition, as its lawyers put it in Thursday's motion, that the FTC's harassment campaign was even more extreme and far-reaching than it had imagined. Roke was the Ernst & Young partner overseeing the assessment. It was hired by Twitter to perform. An assessment mandated by the May 22 consent decree. Twitter's previous management retained in retained Ernst & Young in July of 2022 to issue the assessment report of its security measures. During the FTC's question of Roke about Ernst & Young's withdrawal from the engagement and various emails exchanged by partners, the longtime CPA dropped a bombshell. The FTC had so pressured Roke to reach its preconceived conclusion that Twitter had violated the consent decree that Roke sought help researching the ethical standards that govern CPAs to assess whether their independence had been compromised, as I stated before. He revealed that detail when the FTC's lawyers asked him on the meaning of a chat exchange between he and a fellow partner on the evening of February 21st of 2023, shortly before the firm announced it would be withdrawing from its engagement to assess Twitter's compliance. While the actual text message was filed under seal as Exhibit 16 in support of Twitter's motion, the transcript of Roke's questioning was provided to the court, revealing the pertinent aspects of the conversation. Roke began by asking Pendler, where is the best place to confirm independence consideration for attest engagement? About 15 minutes later, Roke followed up by asking, I apologize, I got a phone call right in the middle of that. <laughs> um, so Roke then commented, I, I apologize, Roke followed up by asking whether specific language about an adverse interest threat could work for Twitter. Roke then commented to Pendler that Ernst Young interests are not aligned with Twitter anymore because of the FTC. After showing Roke a copy of his chat exchange with Pendler, the FTC attorney quizzed the Ernst & Young partner on why he had sent the note and what he had meant by the various lines. That's when the bomb exploded, with Roke explaining that he had contacted Pendler, who was with Ernst & Young's professional practice group, which is the internal group that's responsible for ensuring that they adequately follow the standards, because Roke had concerns about whether the FTC had threatened his independence. As we were moving forward with this engagement, we had ongoing discussions with the FTC, Roke explained. During those discussions, 
the FTC kept expressing their opinion more and more adamantly about the extent of procedures Ernst and Young would need to perform based on their expectations. And there was also expectations around the results that they would expect us to find based on the information that Twitter had already provided to the FTC. And the FTC had already reviewed that. Those conversations, Roke testified, made him feel as if the FTC was trying to influence the outcome of the engagement before it had even started. So he was attempting to assess whether Ernst and Young had an adverse threat, meaning someone outside of the arrangement that they had with Twitter, trying to influence the outcome of the results. After Roke revealed his concerns about the FTC's conduct, the lawyer for the federal agency pushed him to backtrack by asking leading questions. A little over a week after Roke's deposition, Twitter's legal team wrote the FTC a scathing letter, noting that Roke's alarming testimony demonstrates that the FTC had resorted to bullying tactics, intimidation, and threats to potential witnesses. It strongly suggests that the FTC has attempted to exert improper influence over witnesses in order to manufacture evidence damaging to XCOR and Mr. Musk, the letter continued, adding that Roke's testimony also raised serious questions about whether the FTC's bias would render any future enforcement action unconstitutional. The FTC refused Twitter's request. In its letter denying Musk access to documents, Rena Kim, the same attorney who allegedly made the statements to Roke, claimed that Twitter's accusations of so-called bullying tactics, intimidation, and threats to potential witnesses by the FTC are completely unfounded. You know, except for a witness testimony and the fact that they pulled out of the deal because of the pressure. There are quite a few legal implications here. The FTC's interference with Ernst & Young's independence thus constituted a violation of the 2022 consent decree. Twitter's legal team argued justifying the court vacating the order or at a minimum, <coughs> excuse me, Ooh, sorry about that, or at a minimum modifying it. Twitter also argued in its motion that as a matter of fairness, the consent decree should be set aside given the FTC's outrageously aggressive demands for documents compared to its posture towards Twitter prior to Musk's purchase. That motion remains pending before the federal magistrate judge Thomas Hickson with a hearing that's set for next month. The House Subcommittee's March 2023 report, it's titled uh, The Weaponization of the FTC and Agency's Overreach to Harass Elon Musk's Twitter, Established, the FTC has requested the names of every journalist that Musk has provided access to internal communications, which has led to the earth-shattering revelations contained in the Twitter files. Many of the FTC's other demands, the House report concluded, also had little to no nexus to users' privacy and information. The report thus concluded the strong inference is that Twitter's rediscovered focus on free speech was met with politically motivated attempts to thwart Elon Musk's goals. This report, as I've stated like three times now, I wrote it in here. I was tired when I wrote the show, so just FYI. Um, 
is linked in the show description. I encourage you to go look at the report. The idea that we have a federal agency that because this decree was in place, they used that to to try to put pressure on Musk and his company not having nothing to do with user data. Like they buy user data in the government like it's candy. So it's just interesting to me that this is the excuse that they would use. Um, And we'll see. I mean, we'll see what the legal ramifications are. It would be really, really awesome when that judge uh, makes his ruling that, you know, the FTC is like almost like a restraining order. Like you're not allowed to reach out to the company anymore. They've complied there's keeping in people's information safe. There's nothing you can do anymore. Um, Tucker Carlson's new Twitter show has landed one of its first advertisers. Carlson agreed to a seven-figure advertising deal with Public Square, which is a shopping app that promotes itself as being the starting point for conservatives to battle environmental, social, and governance policies, according to people who are familiar with the deal. The move indicates that Carlson is looking to use his new program to lure conservative-friendly advertisers eager for a bigger platform. The show, which Carlson launched after Fox News parted ways with him in late April, draws millions of views, even though observers say the numbers have dropped since his first episode in June. Carlson's show on Fox reportedly brought in $77.5 million in advertising revenue just last year. The article goes into explicit detail on the financials of both Public Square as well as Tucker's future media company and its investors. I do encourage you to take a look at the article. It is pretty interesting, Um, but I'm not going to, I'm already at 21 minutes. And so I'm not going to go into a ton of detail about all of that, but I do encourage you to do so if you, if you're interested in that. While it took the Biden administration the better part of six months to drain the U.S. oil supply down to a precarious 20 days of emergency reserves, which is a 40-year low, it will take decades to refill, if that happens at all. And unfortunately, this was likely by design. The Strategic Petroleum Reserve now sits at 346.8 million barrels, a level unseen since 1983, That is the year that I was born. Out of a total authorized storage capacity of 714 million, replenishing the supply will be a non-trivial and lengthy process, according to experts, who say that a lack of funding and ancient infrastructure will hinder the process, despite the energy department's vow to keep buying. It would be a very slow process, even if you had the money and facilities were all in good shape, said John Shages, who previously oversaw the oil cash for the Energy Department, adding, it could take decades. The depleted SPR also means that the U.S. could be vulnerable to oil price shocks, in particular during domestic supply crunches. America will be left to the mercy of the Saudis, Russia, and the rest of OPEC. The Department of Energy's mismanagement of the SPR has undermined America's energy security, leaving the nation more vulnerable to energy supply disruptions and increasing the ability for OPEC and Russia to use energy as a geopolitical weapon. This was said by top House 
and Senate Republicans in a May letter to the Government Accountability Office asking the federal watchdog for an audit of the reserve. The pace of refilling the SPR has been sluggish at best, while the Department of Energy plans to replace the barrels sold last year at falls far short of the goal to replenish the reserves to its 2009 peak. Congress's decision to strip $12.5 billion earmarked for reserve oil purchases further complicates the situation, as the Department of Energy is now left with a mere $4.3 billion to acquire oil, an insufficient amount to fully restore the SPR. Aging infrastructure poses additional challenges. The Gulf Coast salt caverns that make up the reserve were initially designed with a 25-year lifespan. As such, the risk of cavern dissolution increases with each drawdown and refill. Maintenance issues, along with the ballooning costs of the $1.4 billion modernization program, add further strain to the already troubled reserve. It's amazing what we're able to find $1.4 billion for and just can't seem to scrape up change for in this governmental atmosphere. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau blamed the American right wing for Canadian Muslims' opposition to gender ideology and LGBTQ curriculum in K-12 education. There is a video of Trudeau speaking with the Muslim community last week at a Calgary mosque. And after hundreds of protesters rallied against gender ideology in schools chanting, leave our kids alone, the frustration reached a boiling point after audio surfaced of an Edmonton public schools teacher berating Muslim students for skipping school in order to avoid pride events. It goes two ways. If you want to be respected for who you are, if you don't want to suffer prejudice for your religion, your color of skin or whatever, then you better give it back to people who are different from you. That's how it works, said the teacher. To children. Literally being, ugh. To children. A Muslim individual explained to Trudeau where the community was coming from, according to the video. I ask you, Mr. Prime Minister, please protect our culture, our belief, the sin that you are doing to them. He responded, first of all, there's an awful lot of misinformation and disinformation out there from people on social media, particularly fueled by the American right wing who are spreading a lot of untruths about what is actually in the curriculum. Well, there's a there's a recording of a teacher uh, telling Muslim children, they must expect, they must accept this, otherwise they won't be accepted. Like, it's, there's a difference anyway. Oh, God. The idea that we can't distinguish between religious, um, scripture-based beliefs and sexual preferences, like, that's, That's the thing that just blows my mind and where I just, the disconnect, I break inside of my brain every time I try to do this. We're talking about children. We're not talking about grown adults making decisions on how they want to live their lives. You're telling children that they need to accept sexual preferences and and that 
that they won't be tolerated for their religious decisions or the color of their skin if they don't adhere to the ideology that you want them to. That's, it's, that blows my mind. Anyway, I apologize. I digress. Um, Trudeau's office did not immediately respond to a request for comment, which is a shocker, I'm sure, to everyone listening. On June 25th in Calgary, Alberta, hundreds of protesters screamed, leave our kids alone and our kids, our choice. My brothers and my sisters, we cannot stay hidden anymore for the issue is getting closer to each and every one of us. This was said by Mahmoud Mura at the event. If you're not a father today, tomorrow you will be. If you're not a mother today, tomorrow you will be. You'll have a daughter. Or do you have a son who is of minor age? He's a vulnerable. And you have some hyenas and really powerful predators that are willing to go. They're willing to do whatever they can to take your kids away from you. We will protect our kids as much as it takes, he continued. Trudeau went on to claim that the right-wing forces were driving a wedge between the Muslim community that is hurting the fabric of respect and openness that allows Canada to be one of the places where we support and defend the Muslim community more than just about any other Western Canadian. Do you hear that? You toe the line and we will support you staying here. If you look at the various curriculums, there is not aggressive teaching or conversion of kids into being LGBT. That is something that's being weaponized by people of the far right who have consistently stood against Muslim rights, he said. But they are weaponizing the issue of LGBT, which is something that, yes, Islam has strong opinions on. The same way that the religious right in Canada, the Christian right, has strong opinions on as well. They're using those fears to drive a wedge between a government that will always stand up for your rights. Just like I will always stand up for the rights of LGBT kids, including if they're LGBT Muslims. We're going to defend your rights when you disagree with us defending other people's rights. Let that man cook. Drive a wedge between the government and you. We must hold our power. You must not realize that you have more in common with your fellow man than you think. You must continue to believe that we are your only protector, you savage Muslims. You are only here because we let you be here. You must continue to obey. Left-wing commentators in the U.S. have similarly responded to Muslims' uprising against gender ideology by stoking fear about what an alignment with the right could mean. Michelle Goldberg, an opinion columnist at the New York Times, called the supposed ideological alliance between Christians and Muslims on education strange new political bedfellows, and went on to list the right's purported phobia of Muslims. MSNBC peddled a similar narrative at least twice in recent weeks, claiming that the right was recruiting Muslims. The claim was disputed by an executive at the Council for American Islamic Relations, or CARE, Edward Ahmed Mitchell, the national deputy director at CARE, said it was time for liberal 
commentators like MSNBC's Saki to accept that Muslim parents are independent, intelligent people speaking for themselves. The director of the Islam and Religious Freedom Action Team for the Religious Freedom Institute, Ismail Royer, told um, them that Saki's remarks were insulting to Muslims. The left wants to scare Muslims into accepting its indoctrination of our children in exchange for a smile and a pat on the head. They insult Muslims by portraying us as having no agency or intelligence, but can't imagine that we've weighed the bargain they offer us and we're rejecting it. That is your Tuesday edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. It is long today, but uh, important things brewing. I will be back with you tomorrow. You guys take care and have a wonderful Tuesday. If you enjoyed the show, please like, share, do all of the things. Uh, Comment, like if you leave a review, especially on iTunes, it really helps me out. Um, Otherwise, just go check out the deals at Palmetto State Armory and read the additional things that I didn't cover today. I love you guys. You guys take care and have a great Tuesday. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.